0: All right, we ended our discussion last time uh talking about uh the uh departures from the truth that began to happen in the early church and we uh, uh began to talk about the uh the confessional within the Catholic Church and some uh some things about that that uh how how it began it didn't begin just the way that it, the modern Use of it today. It began simply by ostracizing those who were sinners in the in the public uh, congregation. While everyone else participated in the activities of the worship service, you had those who uh, were looked down upon and ostracized, and they were off to the side crying and moaning and mourning and and trying their best to uh, seek forgiveness. Now. What things do we learn from the Bible that uh, would lend themselves to uh, allowing us to learn that's not what has been described for us? A penitent person who comes before God is never excluded from his or her brothers and sisters, never The penitent person who comes forward asking uh, God for forgiveness for whatever sin in their lives uh, or maybe asking forgiveness uh, from his or her brothers and sisters for things they have done. At what point in the the writings of the Bible do we read how those people are shoved off to the side uh, as, as it were they were second class citizens and let them suffer in their agony until a man decides to go over and absolve them from their sin. See, often we don't think of it that way, but when we begin to break down the aspects of these various doctrines that have been created by people, we begin to see very clearly how far from the Bible they actually are. and. Uh th- this idea, once it began to happen, was universal within this apostate church that grew out of the Lord's church. Uh there were some varying uh details or uh descriptions of it. The customs maybe changed a little uh little bit from location to location, but generally they were the same. For some sins. Men and women were required uh, to do penance during the whole of their lives. Now, what does that tell us? What would would that indicate about God? That someone uh, commits a sin and they have to work and do penance and be uh, punished the whole of their life. What does that indicate about God? No forgiveness. You can't, uh, you know... I think we recognize that there's nothing we can do as individuals to earn God's forgiveness, right? But God has set forth a plan of grace that allows one to come to Him in penance, sincerely asking Him for forgiveness. And what does God do? Does He ever hold that over our heads? Once we are forgiven of a sin, that's the end of it, right? We have to continue on and maintain that forgiveness through living simply a... Uh, the Christian lifestyle, but the sin committed in the past that we have stopped doing and that we've asked God for forgiveness. <clears throat> There's never been a prescription in the New Testament that required a person to continually do penance for that. You know, that kind of grew out of the uh, aesthetic mindset of many of those who, who lived in the first century, right? You have to punish yourself. You have to continually punish yourself. And that found its way over into the Catholic Church. And they would often inflict uh, uh, punishment upon themselves physically. They'd whip themselves or, or whatever the case may be. And uh, this absolution of sin was only granted to them in death, right? Now, you, you know, one of my questions would be, who decides which sin is a sin that you have to do penance for the rest of your life? You know, the customs varied from place to place, so you have whoever's in charge in this country over in Europe saying, well, you have to do this, and then you may have someone doing something, something entirely different over in another area. But the common course of penance that was uh, uh, consigned was for maybe 10 to 15 or 20 years. To uh, uh, varying degrees of humiliation. Okay, uh, ha, uh, the uh, the the popular uh, novel and literature, the Scarlet Letter. Y'all are familiar with the Scarlet Letter, and that's kind of what they did to that lady, right? She had to put the A where the A. Uh, you know, we're not saying that committing adultery. In any way, is something, we're not defending her behavior. But, that's almost like what this is, isn't it? God never lets you quite live it down. God never actually, and people certainly don't, right, that, that participate in this kind of thing. You can never really get rid of the stigma of making a mistake. Now, what kind of life is that? Because who doesn't make a mistake? Everybody makes a mistake. The the bishops and the priests and, you know, I think it has come to light, especially in the last 20 or 30 years, of uh, some of the terrible mistakes that the priests of the Catholic Church have made, right? Uh, what are we going to do about that, right? I don't see them lining up and making them pay penance to varying degrees of humiliation for Five to 10 to 15 to 20 years, or maybe even until they die, I think what I've seen is a huge cover-up to keep people from finding out about those things, right? And so, uh, you know, what's the old saying? If it's fair for the goose, it's fair for the gander, but that's not really what we see happening in reality, is it? So this idea that you can never fully be forgiven, I think that is a huge obstacle that there's no answer for when it comes to the people who participate in these things, God simply cannot forgive you or won't forgive you, right? That's the that's the idea, that uh, that we get there. Any comments, brother Joe? <laughs> you know what, brother Joe makes a statement: it's easier to be forgiven by God than it is to forgive yourself. Boy, that's the truth, isn't it? That's the truth, especially people who are conscientious, right? People who truly want to be forgiven. You know, we see that mindset with Paul, don't we? I think we recognize we can be forgiven, but we never stop quite stop hurting over the fact of what we've done. Right? Uh our, our people we we uh come into contact with may very well forgive us. May never think another thing about it. God obviously forgives us, but we cannot forgive ourselves a lot of the time. Well, there's some people who never forgive. And that's one of the things in the model prayer that Jesus talked about. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And we see it in the two different accounts written uh, regarding that model prayer. But, you know... Paul carried with him for the balance of his life the very fact he said, I'm the chief of sinners because I persecuted the church of God. And he just, he, it was hard for him to get over the fact that, that, that he had done that. It hurt him so badly, it didn't hinder him in his work. And I think that maybe is one difference that, that we need to clarify, right? people can be so hard on themselves that they allow it to debilitate them and they just you know think well I just can't be forgiven well no wonder they feel that way when you have a history of an organization who taught that and has been teaching it for you know what almost two you know 1500 years more you know that that embeds the mindset into a person well I can't really be forgiven though I really want to be forgiven, right? Kind of reminds me of Calvinism in a sense. You know, I want to be saved so badly, but if God chose not to save me from eternity, what are you going to do about it? Then you have the the heretic who doesn't care anything about God, but then God said, well, I'm going to save him from eternity. Well, I don't want to be saved. Well, too bad, I'm going to save you anyway. What kind of sense does that make? Makes no sense, right? (coughs) But anyway we see the the, the the conflict between doctrines created by people and what God said. God's very clear. He's not the author of confusion, Paul said. He's very clear in what he expects and what he demands. But, as with all denominations in the world, people begin to place the safety of their souls in the hands of others instead of determining for themselves what God said. God has never endorsed that. He's never endorsed that. Any comments? Brother Ron. Absolutely, and Brother Ron, you know, what? on the other side of that is this once-saved-always-saved idea. Right? Can't be forgiven over here no matter what you do. Over here, you can never lose your salvation no matter what you do. Right? And, uh, uh, you know, uh, denominational supporters of that, denominational leaders, and, in, in, uh, you know, we can look through the history of that and, and we can look it up and it's in different uh, manuals or, or whatever But they've stated you could be in the very act of murdering someone, in the very act of adultery or fornication, in the very act of any other sin and die, and there's not one thing that can cost you your soul if you're saved. Well, you know, that makes about as much sense as this does. But what about the poor fellow that's over here, and he's been begging and pleading for forgiveness, you know, what, what does he have to do? Well, according to this doctrine... <clears throat> after this long, distressing penance had been fulfilled, uh, the the priest or whoever it may be will finally go to that individual, kneel down beside him, he'll place his head between his knees, and he'll uh, look up, and then that man will absolve him of his sins if he feels like he has done enough penance. Man, I tell you... Uh you know, I don't want to. I don't want some person determining whether I can be forgiven of sin or not, because just like we know, some people won't forgive you. Some people never forgive you, uh, whereas God will. <clears throat> uh, one person wrote this regarding that, saying the people received him after he had been absolved with transports of joy, as one escaped from the coils of the old serpent. Put on a pretty good display of emotionalism, and and finally that individual was forgiven. You know, it's just uh, it's terrible. Why do that? Why, why? How how did that arise in the first place? What's the purpose of that for the bishop to have that kind of sway over the congregation? What is the purpose? Why would they do that? <clears throat> to maintain authority over the people, to control the people. And if you can control the people through humiliation, that's even better, right? You've got them where you want them, and you can keep them there. Because just like in today's world, just like in the denominations of today, the vast majority of the members are sincere and want to please God. They love God. And the leadership, the hierarchy of these various organizations take advantage of that sincerity and teach them wrong things. In a lot of cases, it's more akin to brainwashing than it is anything. And so they have that power over them. The phrase used by the priest is this, I absolve you. Well, there's a whole lot wrong with that statement. The least of which is not that I part. I absolve you. I don't need, and you don't need, we don't need, some man or woman to... Who do they think they are? Isn't that arrogant? Isn't that arrogant to... Of course, it's arrogant for it to have developed the way in which it developed. But, yeah... Absolutely, and that's the one aspect of control. I absolve you. Well, <clears throat> if I want to be forgiven of sin, I have to keep this bishop on my good side. Therefore, I have to allow him to maintain this control because I want to get to heaven. Now, that might not have been the thought in the front of their mind, but it certainly was the thought in the back of their mind. Now, that phrase, though, <clears throat> I absolve thee, that one didn't come into vogue until about the 13th century. So we see, you know, uh, you know, a thousand years down the road or, you know, thereabout, how it has developed and evolved. Tell me the sin that doesn't do that. <coughs> what sin doesn't develop and evolve over time and, and get bigger and bigger and bigger? What, what cancer can we have in our bodies if left untreated just stays right where it is? Won't cause a problem if we ignore it; it'll stay right there and won't do anything. You know that that doesn't exist, does it? Not in the real world. And so, over time, practices evolve because after a while, it's just not good enough, is it? It's not exciting enough. It's just not whatever enough of that we want it to be. You know, I've told the. Example of the lady that had come visit with us a couple times that that we know through the course of doing some business. And she said, boy, I just can't get past that music. I just like my music. Well, we have music in the Lord's church. We just don't use the instrument, right? Well, see, that's, that's the problem. I just can't get past my music. Yeah, you know, it's all personal pronouns. What I need to get past is me. Right? I need to get past I and me and we and focus on God. Focus on Him. Focus on He and His and and things of that nature. Right? That's what God expects. Uh, Thomas Aquinas was one of the first men to write in uh, uh, defense of I absolve you. But during his time, uh, there was great opposition to it. Now, we've talked about Innocent Third, who became Pope. And in 1215, uh, he created a whole lot of laws. And he made this common practice. He made this part of, in essence, he made it part of, in his mind, God's Word, right? And so uh, one of those... Laws that he helped to create in 1215 at the 4th Council of the Lateran uh, was a full confessional to the priest. It was required before sin could be absolved, and no matter how secret the sin was. Are there sins in our lives that only God and the individual know about? This, tell me the The sin of the mind that anyone knows about other than the person who had the thought in God and as you mature as Christians isn't that really what we have to begin to focus on sins of the mind more than outward sins of some kind of physical nature right as we mature and grow as we mature and grow as Christians we ought to Surely we can get a handle on our mouths a little better, right? Surely we can get a handle on our actions a little better, but we're always in our own minds, aren't we? And we're always struggling because we're people with certain things and we may have thoughts, uh you know, thoughts of anger, thoughts of this, thoughts of that, that we have to battle, and who knows about that other than the individual and God? Doesn't matter what innocent the third said, does it? He doesn't make the rules. You know, who made that rule, I think, is the best question we ought to ask. Who made that rule? Who decided that? Well, Innocent III decided it, and those who uh, uh, came before him. You know, when we look at this aspect of sin, and that's something we need to really be conscious of, right? To whom do we go for forgiveness? I think that's something that we need to understand. I was thinking about that earlier this morning. (coughs) When we think of, uh, let's take, for example, a public confession of sin. How How do we need to handle that? Someone comes forward, and they may even speak in detailed information, right? And by the way, before we even mention that, what's the difference in what the church does and what the Catholic church does? You have someone come forward and usually it's a private conversation on the front row, right? Or it's a, someone wrote a note or someone taught, called you, say, hey, I just want to make a statement. Uh, you know, do you have to walk up the aisle to, you don't have to, that's a matter of expediency, isn't it? At any rate, so you get the information. So what's the difference in what the Catholic Church does, whispering into the ear of the priest, and making a statement to an elder or preacher or, or some other man the congregation uh, stating you want to make a public response. What's the the difference there? Well, I think the main difference is the, the, the context of what's going on, right? Who does the Christian go to for forgiveness? First of all, we go to God for forgiveness, right? Now, what about this idea? And we've talked about this before. Someone comes forward and they say, Well, if I've sinned against anyone, I just think that's a big problem. Do you, did you or not? Right? I was speaking with someone the other day and, and I think a, a large part of the Lord's church misunderstand this idea of a public repentance. Right? I think, you know, maybe you know, it's never wrong to go forward ask the church to pray for you for for strength and living in this life or whatever, right? But, you know, I think we need to understand the purpose of a public repentance. The purpose of a public repentance is I can't go to an individual or individuals and take care of the problem, right? Uh, You know, if I'm running around in all the bars in town, and I don't know who saw me and who didn't see me, right? So what I need, there's no way. So I need to make a public repentance. Now, what if, uh you know, you've sinned against a, a number of people in some way, but the vast majority of people don't know anything about it, but it still requires a statement of a public repentance because you can't go to everybody, right? But who do we go to first? We go to God first. And then we get up and... Uh, Repentance doesn't mean revelation. Okay? We don't have to go into every detail. But we do have to own the sin. This I, if I've done something, I don't think it's going to get it. But if it's of a public nature, we go to, I think, as many as we can that we know and we say, look, I've done wrong here. Now I'm going to make a public repentance. And so do we have to describe every detail to the person in the audience that doesn't know anything about it? No, it's not in their business. All they need to understand is the person is taking responsibility for a deficit in their lives, and they want the people who are aware of it to understand that they are asking God to forgive them and want them to forgive them, right? And so that's the difference in what's going on in the Lord's church and what happens In the Catholic Church or any other place that uses something similar to this. And so this, I think, ties its its way back to materialism. Someone you can feel, you can touch, you can look at them, you can hear them. And so, you know, we don't like speaking to an invisible God who doesn't literally speak back to us. That's the mindset of the world, right? And so if you can put something in place of Him, now think about it let's go back to when the divided kingdom Israel and Judah, Jeroboam the first is and if you read throughout the uh, uh, the book of first uh, uh, 2nd chronicles and uh, on down kings first kings first chronicles, how is that description of Jeroboam always the man who made Israel to sin? Did he believe in the God of heaven? (coughs) Absolutely. He conversed with the God of heaven. And what was the first thing he did? He set up two golden calves. Why? The people needed someone to see, someone to look at, something to touch, something to feel, something material. Now, he wasn't replacing God as it were. He was just putting up a representative there that you could see. Well, that's wrong. That's wrong. we still out of worship, right? That's what the Catholic Church has done. This is what we're looking at here as the church began its falling away. Again, let's always keep in mind that falling away Paul talked about was not the Catholic Church. I think the Catholic Church was the result of that falling away, okay? But instead of going to an invisible God that can't, Well, that's not the right way to put it. He can talk back. The one who chooses not to talk personally to us because we walk by faith, not by sight. You know, the world doesn't want that. They want something that they can look at and hear, and that's what the priest has done. That's what the Pope is done. It all goes back to materialism, right? We like living in this world. We like physical things because we're physical beings, you know? I think that's a big problem. Any comments? (coughs) Well, Joe. <coughs> well, I don't know necessarily of any specific study that's been made about uh, and what Brother Joe's talking about is people doing things in their religious lives that they would never do in any other realm of life. I don't know of any particular study just from the, you know, each person's study of humanity as we see and study the scripture, you know, when we look at things like this. Uh, Brother Ron mentioned, you know, this once saved, always saved idea. Tell me the employer. In fact, we just asked Brother Ron, he worked Blue Cross Blue Shield for a long time, had a lot of people working under him. How many people did you let stay on the job that showed up the first day and said, hey, just keep sending the paycheck, I'll catch you when I catch you. Zero. Goose egg, right? Uh, not going to happen. Not go- but it happens people will accept it in the religious realm, right? Doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Makes no sense. And so, uh, you know, we just finished up a class uh over at Greens Lake Road on apologetics. Yes, sister Jane. Mm-hmm. yeah and sister Jane makes a statement that 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 happened here, and you know, and I would never tell someone okay you can't you can't do that but if i if I have an idea that i you know if maybe I live in such a way that I'm fearful that I've offended a number of people, I probably have a pretty good idea who those number of people would be, and I just have a personal issue with that again, you know. You know, if someone says, I just want to make sure everything's okay, you know, that's what they need to do. But by and large, I've just seen it too many times when you know you've watched a person's behavior and everybody else has watched that person's behavior. And and I don't mean this particular scenario, right? But uh, then instead of owning the behavior... They say, well, if I've done something, well, look, you know if you did it. You know what you did, right? Again, you know, I'm not talking about this particular scenario because I think if someone says, you know, I just want to make sure that's what they need to do, they need to do that, right? And so I'm not talking about a situation like that. But that, she, Sister Jane is correct. Yes? Yeah. <laughs> uh, if the if 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 the son of the president of the company wants to just show up when he wants to, I guess that's his business, isn't it? Okay, <laughs> but that's an exclusive, unique situation, right? <clears throat> Same thing. Yeah, the son of the owner can do what he wants to do, right? That's right. Exactly. Any other comments? Yes. Sure, yeah they don't and and you know Preston makes a point, and this is very common through the throughout the denomination world there's there's always a plea made come back home right, in whatever form it takes. what's the purpose of that? looks to me like it's an exercise in futility if you can't do anything to lose you lose your salvation in the first place right it, it, but but that's right and and so when you begin to break it down, I I, I think reasonable people would say, I don't really believe that. Did you have something, Brother Joe? Does all this go back to the power God's given Satan? Uh, I don't think God has given Satan any power, per se. He has allowed him, because he is a creature of free will choice, to do what he wants to do. Okay? Uh, And that is definitely one of the arrows in his quiver, isn't it, Brother Joe? That he can convince people that you know any crazy idea that comes along is fine as long as you are sincere in your belief you know i don't think any of us would and again this goes back to an example of you know you wouldn't make that application in the other realm of life Uh, how many of us here would say that the muslim who is sincere in his belief you know hey that's okay he'll make his way to heaven well, I mean, the Muslim is diametrically opposed to, the, to Christ in his church. Diametrically opposed. One of the greatest enemies uh, of Christ in his church. So I don't think we'd agree with that. What about, uh, you know, and, and uh, uh, we talked about uh, dangerous religions. Had a class on dangerous religions. What about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, better known as the Mormon Church? You know, they hold up Joseph Smith as, as a great prophet of God. They give more credence to what he says than what Christ says. I don't know that any of us, uh, uh, you, you know, when I say any of us, I mean the general population is going to say, uh, who are religiously minded and claim to be Christians, okay, uh, are going to say, well, that's okay. What about the Jehovah's Witness doctrine? that says Jesus Christ was just a created being like you and me and everybody else that was created. Well, that's 180 degrees opposite of what the Bible teaches, isn't it? We can read John 1 1 through 3 and determine that. So, you know, we won't accept that in any other avenue of life. But people will accept it in the religious realm but it's becoming more popular these extreme religions uh that once were so on the fringe becoming more and more mainstream like the jehovah's witness like uh, the the mormon church you know uh uh scientology you know scientology used to be kind of reserved for the crazy people out in hollywood didn't it not so much anymore you know any comments before we close? All right. Uh, we're going to uh, talk about uh, indulgences next time, how that things evolve into something else. And, and uh, you know, we made mention of this last time, but we'll bring to our attention that uh, this idea of the confessional had found its way into this Boston Crossroads movement that, uh, within the church, these prayer partners, Preston had mentioned that last time, that caused a huge problem in the church, uh, based on something very similar to this. So, so error, you know, the church is not immune to outside error coming in and affecting it. We can look around to once faithful congregations and, uh, uh, you know, see that they've gone apostate. But anyway, we'll pick up here next time. We will talk just for a moment about uh, some of the statements made in the confessional next time. Take just a few minutes, then we'll move into the uh, indulgences. Thank you so much.